Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Fitter, Healthier Dad podcast, where you can learn how to improve your diet, lose fat, and get fitter in a sustainable and fun way without spending hours in the gym. Here is your host, Darren Kirby. Welcome back to the podcast, guys. This is the number one podcast for dads in their 40s who want to improve their health and fitness. This is episode 69, and on today's episode, we're going to be talking to Professor Tim Spector, OBE, on the benefits of healthy gut and how your diet can heal your gut and your overall health. Professor of Genetic Epidemiology and the Director of Twins UK Registry at King's College London, his work focuses on omnics, the microbiome, and he directs the UK-funded Gut Microbiome Project. Professor Tim is a prolific writer with several popular science books and a regular blog focusing on genetics, epigenetics, and most recently, the gut microbiome. Hi, Tim. Thanks very much for joining me on the podcast today. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yes, um, looking forward to it. Thanks very much for taking the time out. I know you must be extremely busy right now with the studies you've got going on with, with COVID and things like that. So how are things around that progressing, obviously, this ever-changing landscape? Uh, yes, um, I was hoping to be nice and quiet by now, but it hasn't happened. And um, yeah, rates in the UK are picking up everywhere, but there's real. what we're picking up is these real regional differences and wow. differences in age as well. So it's still being driven by people aged under 30. Okay. And uh, in, in all the areas. And so that's, you know, the only good thing is that, you know, it shouldn't cause as much problems uh, for the NHS uh, at the moment. Um, so that's the only bit of sort of good news so far mm. is that most of the disease are mild. But of course, on the downside, you know, we've just um, published this data about long COVID, which can affect people of all ages. So right. um, it's not just about deaths or going to hospital. Um, we've got this sort of, you know, one in t- group of one in 20 or, or, or more that will suffer these long term problems. And that's that's, I think something to worry everybody, you know, and um, people who are under 60 in particular. Yeah, and, and the long-term effects, is there any pattern around that in terms of the underlying health of the people that have those long-term effects? Um, well, we don't really know yet because we haven't really gone out beyond six months. Right. Um, and there's certainly rare stories of people who have uh, heart problems or nerve problems um, six months later uh what we don't and there'll always be these rare cases what we don't know is how common it is in um, the average person who gets a mild illness that just carries on for a long time um so it's too early although you know the the sort of good news is that most people who are sick after a month will recover by three months right and so the numbers do go down so if there's people out there who you know have been uh you know tired and headachey and, and and fed up after a month the stats do generally show that the majority will improve and each time it doesn't improve leaving a smaller group uh further on so uh but yeah we're learning more about it and um hopefully we start to get some early treatments and, and things for those people yeah and just just quickly on that before we move on you know around vaccines and things like that what is your view on an available vaccine and how effective a vaccine is going to be um, I'm a bit uh, sceptical that there's going to be one miracle vaccine uh, anytime soon. Um, and I think all of the vaccines that are currently in trial are really normal ones. So they may end up with, they may end up with side effects we don't know about. Uh, and we may have to use multiple ones uh, yeah. given every, every year and things like this. So I think they'll be trialed mainly in the old and the very vulnerable. Right. Uh, and I think we're going to have to just deal with uh, the virus certainly for the next year by ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's my view at the moment. So we need to get used to it, but you know, if any of your listeners are out there in the U S or the UK, you know, download our app and we give you masses of information about what's happening in your area. And you can also contribute um, to all the science study app. 
Yeah, and uh, congratulations on your recent OBE as well with regards to the works uh, around that. It's a huge achievement. Yeah, it was a shock, but it's mainly for the huge team that uh, did this, really, because uh, I'm just the spokesperson, but um, yeah. I, can't, I can't do any of it myself. <laughs> no, exactly. Excellent. Well, thanks very much for, for the information and, and kind of update on that. But obviously, you know, you're, you're more than just um, a professor uh, of epidemiology around COVID. You've obviously got a, a long and distinguished career uh, around um, health and, and um, things like that. So for people that perhaps haven't come across you before, um, can you give us a bit of background on your, on your career history and, and your field of research and books that you, you, you produce? Yes, uh, I'm not the classical doctor, although I, I trained in medicine and was a physician, uh, and then I also trained in epidemiology. Uh, I did, uh, for most of my career, rheumatology. Um, right. So studying arthritis and bones, osteoporosis. Um, and then I got into genetics. I set up uh, this twin cohort, the largest twin uh, cohort in the UK of 12,000 twins, which I've now been studying for nearly 30 years. Right. And um, then, uh, you know, I get bored of subjects every five years or so. If it's not producing something, I, I, I teach myself something else. Right. And so... Uh, genetics was pretty good. That kept me excited for a long time. Yeah. Um, then I got into epigenetics, which is how you, uh, you know, why you can switch your genes around and uh, modify them. Then I thought that wasn't going to produce the big results. So then really the last 10 years have got into uh, gut health and the microbiome. Yeah. And that's, uh, and, and once I understood that, then that got me really interested again in nutrition. And, right. Because uh, I could see it from a, a completely different light, and that's yeah. really where at my before COVID hit, that was really my um, where it was all going, with this idea of personalised nutrition, using the gut microbes, using the idea that all unique, uh, and in a way demonstrating that with twins as well. So that's where I was, and and I along the way each time I teach myself a subject, I tend to write a book about it, right, um, as as a good way of me doing the research from scratch. And, um, yeah, I've now written four books. Um, and the latest one uh, is called Spoon Fed, which is about diet myths. And the other one was um, uh, the one uh, uh, four or five years ago, which I'm now revising, is called The Diet Myth, which is more about gut microbes. Yeah. And they're, they're all still very topical at the moment. Yeah. Unlike my yeah. earlier books, which are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's huge. And I've got a, a very deep interest in nutrition and gut health, um, just from the, the small amount of knowledge that I've got. So I, I, I want to dig into that on, on today's episode, really. Um, and it's, it's really, why is it only now do you think that we started to do the research that we have on the gut microbiome, um, you know, and the, the amount of stuff that appears to be coming out in research is quite profound in so much as the dramatics of the dramatic effects it can have on our overall health just by getting our gut microbiome healthy. I think, well, there are a number of reasons. I think we, we were stuck in this uh, myth uh, up to 20 years ago that, that our gut was full of bacteria that were trying to kill us. Okay, and there's really the only people studying it were those people studying infections right. and whether you got salmonella or you got cholera or you know something nasty in, in a kebab. That was really the sort of um, level of interest. And so basically, it was just you just tried to wipe them out with antibiotics mm -hmm. and uh, you know colonic irrigation and get rid of the toxins. It was all terrible. Yeah, um, and then. About so around 20 years ago, a few people in the US mainly started to be able to identify a few of these bugs and worked out they could actually be healthy when you put them into mice and things. And that, and so after the last 20 years, really following behind the genetic revolution about technology about how to identify them, because in the past people had to grow them up on a plate, right? You know, uh, right. a bit like you know. Fleming and whatever and his penicillin you had to wait and see if it grew 
and then you someone identified it so we always that must be this bug so that that you only got a handful of, of microbes there rather than the thousands of species we know now so we needed genetics to do it we needed data we needed collections and so um and you also needed a whole new specialty group of scientists uh, right, to do right. it and the infectious disease people weren't interested and they're still not um it, take, it took a whole new group of scientists and medics to make that transition to start using the new technology these massive sequencing methods which are now you know used to cost you know it used to cost 10 20 000 pounds to study your microbiome for example yeah. properly and now you can do it for you know a foot you can get the genetic sequence of every single bug in you measured um for you know less than 100 pounds now so yeah. and it's going to keep coming down so um i i think that's that's been the change at, and in in many countries the uk more the us there haven't been the experts around to do it and uh it's it had a bad reputation as well I think from the, from the yogurt companies trying to you know flog flog us too much stuff and making huge claims that you know your life would be transformed with uh, just one one yogurt um, yeah. you could be a superman so that that that's in a nutshell, I think why it's taken so long. But the last five years have been amazing, and e you know, even the last year, um, we've seen how the technology is just uh, totally opening up whole new areas in our research. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I think that the research and the, the particularly the testing, I think, that's coming out or being made available at such a, a lower cost, for me is is quite a big shift in the way that we deal with our health and what i mean by that is that we're now starting to to go along the lines of prevention as opposed to kind of cure and i personally believe that's where we need to go as a society because i as as amazing as the nhs is it the way that it's working right now is not sustainable you know trying to treat based on illness as opposed to prevention i, I just think that's where we need to go to um, and so understanding the gut microbiome, it's become quite a large piece of, of maintaining your health and balancing the bacteria in your guts. So for people listening to this that haven't even heard about microbiome testing or the rest of it, you know, kind of where do you start or is it you just take it back to basic principles and around diet and nutrition? Um, I don't think you, well, it, Taking it back to basic principles is fine if those principles are correct, but I think there's lots of myths around what are people being taught, including medics like myself. So I think the way to start is to realize that the, the microbiome is essentially like a new organ discovered in our bodies. Right. So most people know about the brain, they know about the liver, they know about you know their muscles um, and uh, their heart. You know, we have some basic ideas about how to keep them healthy and what they do. Um, and so if you start thinking of how uh, your, your gut microbiome is a crucial organ for you to stay healthy and prevent disease, it's key for your immune system, it's key for your uh, mental health, Yes. Um, it's key for how you digest things properly, how you get all your minerals and your vitamins. So absolutely crucial that everybody who's interested in health knows how to keep that organ, if you like, in top tip top shape. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, you know, there's no, you know, there's no, your GP isn't going to know how to do that. Um, mm -hmm. your, even your physio isn't necessarily going to, you know, know this stuff. And so you're going to have to learn it yourself from the latest research. Um, you know, a few people like myself, and there's, you know, there are a few books out there as well as mine uh, that tell you, but, if you start with that idea, how do I keep my microbiome healthy? That's the basic principle, I think, that, that uh, works because then everything else starts to make sense uh, yeah. at a general level. Yeah. Um, in that we know that fiber doesn't just work just by flushing out the system, which is what we used to think. You know, yeah. it's just bulky. It used to be called roughage, you know, and you just sort of, yeah. uh, you know, probably you remember back at, you know, yeah. school, you've got to have your roughage. Yeah. As if it was some sandpaper that just went down your <laughs> the toilet and cleaned it all out. And 
So we understand, you know, fiber is very different. So just having all your fibers all brown isn't going to be healthy because your microbiome likes diversity. Yeah. You know? And so it's like suddenly learning how to be a gardener um, right. who can say, well, you know, uh, it, it obviously you don't just want one plant in your garden and give it one type of food. Uh, you want a rich variety. And that's, that's really where I think that, you know, it, it starts to make sense. So we know that generally plants are healthy for us. Uh, a natural uh, a diet that's rich in plants is going to be healthy for us. Whether you add in meat or fish or whatever, yeah. most people agree that a plant-based diet is healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's important not to just have a kale smoothie every day. Um, uh, because someone's told you that's a superfood or yeah. your, your chia seeds or whatever it is, you really have got to start getting this mix. And, you know, in my books, I stress the idea that there's these 30 ingredients, uh, 30 different plants a week is what yeah. you should be aiming for to get the maximum diversity of your microbial species. Okay. So, so I think, once you start, so in a way, it's working back from your gut rather than working from some textbook that says you've got to have this much fat, this much carbs, this much calories, this and nonsense. And then once you start to do that, and you, you start optimizing it for your gut health. The rest is just obvious and that you don't have to make any huge, you know, leaps of faith. No. Um, you just do things and then you can start listening to your body uh, as you do it. So this, it's the diversity and then you've got you know the fermented foods because that's adding you know it's a bit of a bit of extra petrol in there to to fuel yeah. it up uh you know, small amounts of fermented foods regularly uh and you vary them and avoiding you know ultra processed foods and chemicals and artificial sweeteners yeah uh, the things that are negative for your gut microbes so if you just you know very simply put that stuff together um plus you know we can discuss things like fasting and and, and yeah. intermittent fasting and things but it all seems to fit into the context of the gut microbiome which i think many people who have read my books find is the you know it's quite easy to understand and follow and then you can still eat most of the foods you like and the pattern that suits you but you've got yeah. a general principle there that doesn't mean you're always fighting about you know whether it's keto or low fat or you know low carb or vegan or whatever you can still you don't have to be part of one religious group to do that you can yeah make your own mind, you can make your own mind up and see what works for you yeah and i think i think that's um that's key as well isn't it you know i, I know some people have mocked me for this comment in the past and that is you know there's no one size fits all. And there isn't because it, our microbiome, as, as far as I understand it, is individual to all of us. And so what might be a cow smoothie might be right for you, might be absolutely toxic for me. So um, I think it's, you know, you've been recently quoted that a lot of um, food education should be mandatory. And I 100% agree with that because I think we've lost the ability to determine what a healthy diet is. And what I mean by that is, is that the food industry and as consumers, we are marketed to and sold to that because it's green on the packet or it says vegan, that it's healthy for us. And unfortunately, it's not. So what I wanted to ask you is, is your view on how our diet has evolved? Because I think that's one of the key factors, and to be specific, is, is around the food industry and the processed foods and the kind of, you know, continually eating and just grabbing stuff on the go is, is affecting our overall health. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is really the theme of, of my latest book, Spoon Fed, is about how we've been conned by the food industry into changing our way of eating. And the easiest way to, you know, you don't often don't notice it. If you live in the, in the UK or the US, you look around you, everyone's doing the same. So you don't yeah. think it's anything weird. It's only when you start to look at the stats of other countries and you realize that, um, you know, if you just look at what's going on in Italy or Portugal, um, you know, they have a quarter as much uh, of ultra processed food as we do. We are four Mm -hmm. times more. And the only country that has more ultra processed food 
than uh, the UK is the US. Sixty uh, percent uh, of their meals are ultra processed, wow. whereas we're fifty percent. So, right. but you think, oh, is that because you know it's poor people driving this? It's just the cheap food. Well, it's not because Portugal is down at ten percent. You know, southern Italy fifteen percent, and so you suddenly realise, well, this has just been a gradual campaign over the last thirty years to get us hooked on uh, cheap rubbish foods and. Uh, and we're susceptible in the UK and the US and English speaking countries because we lack a food culture. We lack the grandmother. Yeah. We lack that grandmother, you know, who's always telling you what, what is a good, you know, healthy meal and us repeating it. And mm. uh, this is why we've been suckers for this and why our governments, you know, are also giving in to the pressure of the food lobby uh, every single day because they've become huge. The budgets of these companies are yeah. bigger than half, half the, the countries in the world. Mm. So they can you know, afford any amount of uh, propaganda. And they're also driving a lot of the research, you know, all this stuff on artificial sweeteners and Diet Cokes, Diet Pepsis, yeah. uh, sporting drinks, you, know, y- you name it. Um, they can twist and distort the research behind it all. And yeah. they're doing it very effectively without anyone really noticing and, you know, no one standing up, uh, you know, like they eventually did against cigarettes or, um, you know, um, the, uh, the, the, you know, uh, pollution from the, uh, the, the oil companies, et cetera, mm-hmm. uh, global warming and things. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a cultural thing. And, the first thing is to recognize it yeah. and start to get education back, you know, in kids. So people actually recognize what a vegetable is again, you know? Yeah. Well, and I, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think it is education. I was actually thinking about this just before the interview that, you know, it will have to start with the children because the children are going to be more adaptable to stuff like this. Whereas, you know, the adult population are going to be more resistant to actually accepting that what we've been sold over the last 30 years is incorrect and, you know, no one likes to change. So I think it does have to come come back into the schools. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you was, what is your view on the connection between, you know, there's a massive problem with obesity, mental health, children kind of attention deficit disorders and things like that. You know, have you seen research to link our diets to all of those issues? Um, there are individual ones. So, I mean, we know that, uh, I mean, take mental health, for example. Um, there's good research now that uh, you can alter um, mice and rats' uh, anxiety levels and depression by changing their gut microbes and their diet. Okay, yeah. that's, that's now very well known. We also now know that um, in humans, your microbes can alter the way antidepressants work. Right. Okay, so the same pathway of an antidepressant drug, you can alter with your microbiome. And that also means that as your microbiome is altered by your diet, um, your diet can affect your mental state. And there have been some studies, uh, particularly one in the Australia, where they uh, look, gave a whole group of depressed people a couple of diets um, and they were able to, they were on, you know, generally depressed people don't bother with their food as well. So they yeah. go into a bit of a state. They were managed, but just by changing it to a Mediterranean, a high fiber microbiome friendly diet, they got a 30% or so improvement in mental state, which was uh, higher than you got, you would get with an antidepressant. Right, right. Um, you know, there's there's huge links in the mental state. Obesity, we know, um, I mean, clearly it's related to diet. And new studies are showing that junk food, um, the same, exactly people, two groups of people, exactly the same food, but one is highly processed, the other isn't. Um, you know, there's the difference is that if you have the junk food, you're going to keep, you won't feel hungry and you'll go back and eat more of it. Yeah. And it affects your metabolism uh, adversely and your gut microbes. So, mm. you know, it's, 
but the, the industry has done extremely well to avoid any discussion that that's our problem. Right. If you look, you look in the paper, everyone says, oh, it's, it's all about calories. It's all about we're not exercising enough. Yeah. Um, it's all about five a day and just getting some orange juice down you. Uh, <laughs> you know, oh, it's just because eat, people are eating too much fat. So you've yeah. got to stick a, a, a low fat label on some crappy yeah. food. And suddenly they think it's healthy. You know, it's, it's all about disguising the fact that we every year we're eating more and more ultra processed food with yeah. 10 or more ingredients that we really don't need that are artificial and not at all like the original plants we were supposed to be eating. So yeah. it's a, it's a giant contract really. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, we're all susceptible for, you know, I was for years as well. So I'm not exempt from it. I, you know, I believed all the stuff that margarine was better than butter. Yeah. You know, yeah. Why, why wouldn't I? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and obviously our our friend, Mr. Ansel Keys as well, kind of contributed to uh, all of that, I guess, in some ways, as far as I know, it kind of started in 1952 when he'd done his, his study on the on the link to, to heart disease and high-fat diet. So, um, yeah, he started it, but, the, you know, but uh, what, what it, interestingly, what they found is that as soon as you say something natural is not good for you, Mm. Um, the the manufacturers can make it much cheaper and make it last longer artificially, and so yeah. then they can you know really gear it all up, make a cheaper product that you know will stay on the shelves for six months without going off, um, and uh, make much more profit out of it. So they're delighted when someone comes along and says, you know, yeah. meat is unhealthy or um, uh, milk is unhealthy or uh, butter's unhealthy um whatever it is you know they will come up with a, a nice cheap alternative um that they can get people to eat much more of yeah you know yeah. It, and even you know and you look at you know even snacks you know it's like they've invented the whole idea of snacking mm. uh, you know you go to other countries um, they don't snack. You know, I spend a lot of time in Spain and, you know, half of them have breakfast up you know, an espresso cigarette um, <laughs> and eat till two o'clock. Yeah. And, and they're not fainting saying, I, I've got to have my, uh, you know, my Twix or my, uh, you know, cocky yeah. uh, biscuit, uh, otherwise I'll faint. Yeah. Um, they ha then have a very decent meal. Yeah. Not at their desk, they get on and you know, yeah, they properly. Yeah. and uh, you know, they are healthier than, than we are. And just you, we just need to learn from this. And you know, we've got into our heads that you can't send our kids to school without you know, giving them lots of snacks so they don't have hypos, you know, yeah. it's complete and absolute nonsense. Yeah, you know, I... they're, they're just having sugar peaks all the time, and that you know, and we're. And we've, we're now showing that in our predict studies about, you know, why that's so wrong. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, um, on, on the kids' side of things, I completely agree. You know, they're, they're worried about kids' behaviours at schools, yet they're fueling them with sugar and bad fats and all the rest of it. And yet they don't let them hydrate throughout the day. You know, so it's, it's basic fundamentals, right? Not even from a scientific standpoint, but, you know, coming back to the, to the basics. Um, no, we've totally, we've totally lost the plot, and you know, and parents feel totally guilty if they don't give their kids breakfast and fill them up with sugary cereals. Yeah, um, and without any evidence, that's you know, that's uh, good for them, and lots of evidence is bad for them. So, yeah. um, I think yeah, it, it just takes a whole new look at this, this thing, and you know, and also listening to, to ourselves, and, um, and yeah. I think. Um, you know, this whole thing of sugar is, is quite interesting because um, we've just we just finished this whole series of experiments called the predict studies. But um, right, gave, um, I don't, you you might have read about them. We we published the first one in Nature Medicine uh, a few months ago um, with UK twins and some extra uh, volunteers in Boston. Yeah, and gave all of them identical foods. Right. It, so we had thousands of people having identical meals at identical times and we measured everything we possibly could. So we gave them, you know, they had 
whole body densitometry machines, exercise PCGs. Uh, we were taking blood every hour from them. Right. And then they had a glucose monitor on them for two weeks. And we were looking at blood lipids after meals and everything, you know, and as well as sequencing everything in their gut. Um, and, you know, the, the biggest shock there was that nobody responds to the same, the same food. Right. right. So that was, that was the real um, shock there, that uh, even identical twins got a different blood response to identical foods. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and some, some people and some, even some twins might respond, uh, have a lower fat response to their meal, and others would have a, um, a better sugar, you know, sugar yeah. glucose insulin response and you couldn't predict this from the label on the food right so that was the big thing because everyone's told us oh well the reason we have these labels is there because once you understand the fat the carbs and the calories you know how it's going to affect you so that's yeah. what most people uh, have been brought up to do and it turns out it's complete rubbish and that you know you, you need a, it's a complex algorithm to work out how you're going to respond to your food and that's why we've we've come up with this this whole concept of personalized nutrition right and as you said you know there isn't one size that fits all um everyone is different and it, and you know you can you can yourself experiment a bit yourself mm -hmm. and there are some people for example that notice sugar dips yeah uh, or they notice whether they do they run faster, you know, if they're on empty stomach or they've just eaten. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's pretty hard. Having done this myself for six months, it's pretty hard to do it. Mm. Uh, and so the idea you can now do a test, um, you know, with uh, this company I've been working with, Zoe, and you can basically do like these, these twins did and have get your, your muffins uh, you get a blood test, a, a, a monitor, a sugar monitor, measure your fat levels, measure what's going on in your gut. Yeah. And, then, and then in an app, you get a reading about what your score for each of those foods, which is going to be different for everybody. Uh, and so you can then start to, you know, just rearrange your priorities of foods depending on how it's going to suit you and whether mm. you don't want lots of big sugar peaks you don't want lots of fat, but again, you don't want to replace that with lots of fat peaks, you know? Uh, you don't want six hours later to have lots of lipids floating around in you just because you're trying to cut down on the sugar. So it's, it's the, you know, it's the idea of combining what's going on with your, how your response to fats, your response to sugar, and your, your gut response in one, in one package. And I think, it, you know, we've just started it in the U.S. Um, okay. Um, I'm really, really excited to see what the response to it is. Mm. Um, we don't know yet. It's too early. Um, and uh, if it goes well, we will bring it to the UK uh, in the new year. Okay. Uh, but, you know, I think, you know, we are in an age now where we, all of us do need to self-experiment and to sort of start yeah. changing our, our mentality about um, diet and food and, what we've been told and start thinking well, what works for us, you know, yeah. um, why do some Eskimos, you know, live on blubber? Yeah. Uh, why do some Maasai just live on milk and meat? And, you know, a third of the world lives on purely on vegetables. Um, you know, there must be some common ground and yet quite a lot of individuality. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think the self-experimentation and, the, the questioning of what we've been told is normal, I think is, is really key to a lot of this. Um, and I think that taking responsibility for that yourself is, is another important point because, you know, like I said earlier on, it is, we've, we've been brought up in this cultural society that we just kind of, we, we believe that, you know, the human body is bulletproof. And to be honest, if you treat it right, I believe that, you know, it's, it's an amazing piece of kit that we have, but if you don't treat it right, 
you know, the general con- the kind of approach has been, well, we'll just go and see a doctor and we have a pill that fixes the problem. That doesn't really work, in my opinion, not for the long term anyway. And so I, I believe that we have to take this approach where we maintain ourselves. You know, I use the analogy all the time that people, I would say, probably maintain their cars more than they do their health. Um, and I think, we, you know, we have to shift that. Um, but, but I thought what was interesting, what you were saying there in the twin study around, you know, two identical twins are completely different. With regards to what the work that you were doing with Zoe, um, have you seen that when people are able to monitor and adapt their diets in line with, you know, what their bodies are telling them, does the body adapt over time? So does it change over time? Um, it's hard to know that. Um, right. Uh, but what we think is happening is that if, if, for example, you know, we did the test with you and we mm. found that, I don't know, what, what's your favourite breakfast at the moment? Uh, smoked salmon and avocado and eggs. Okay, so say we, we showed that um, you take that and then you have a, a big, at six hours, a big fat ride, uh, yeah. a triglyceride yeah. rise in your fats. Okay, so we say change you and you say, okay, well, let's, uh, let's change you to, you know, a more carb-friendly breakfast or a, a yogurt or something or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. You, you've got less of that fat rise Mm-hmm. Uh, so it halved the fat rise later in the day. Um, we think that reduces, we, well, we've got data that shows that reduces your inflammation right. in your blood. Okay. So if we can get that, less of that fat floating around, that means less inflammation. Long term, that means less stress for your body. Mm-hmm. Your, your body's much more relaxed and it's not trying to repair itself as, as all the time, using up a lot of energy in repair. So yeah. we think that improves your metabolism, that uh, allows you to uh, lose weight more easily and gives you more energy and uh, will generally be a long-term benefit. So it's trying to change the short-term right. biology we see with these glucose monitors or the, the fat test and uh, getting that long-term impact. But, you know, this is early days. Uh, yeah. We haven't um, followed people for more than about 12 weeks so far. Okay. At the moment, we're just seeing um, the people who have been in the study are just showing uh, weight loss and improve generally improvement in energy. Yeah. Uh, with a and, and the weight loss is generally due to um, less feeling of hunger, hungry. Right. Not because we're not telling people not to eat. We're you know there's not we're not doing a like a calorie restriction or anything. We're just saying eat these foods, and if you feel you know. You want to eat more or do, you know, but they tend not to. So, which I think is the only sustainable way to do a diet, really. Um, Yeah, I agree. And again, I think we've lost that, haven't we? Because of the the kind of, in the Western world, I believe anyway, the general availability of food and like you say, the snacking culture that we've entered into, we no longer eat when we're hungry. We eat because we maybe haven't eaten for two hours, you know, or we eat because we're dehydrated. I think that's another big, big, big topic that I believe you know is is, a, is an issue is hydration. Um, but we in the UK, there's a lot of talk around the negative effects of sugar and sugar tax. But I've not seen too much being spoken about the huge negative effects of manufactured fats that's used in restaurants and cooking and things like that. So. What, why, unless I've missed something, why do you think that's not being spoken about? Um, are you talking about uh, the trans fats or are you talking about, because uh, um, I think what's, what's, what's key is we shouldn't um, oversimplify nutrition into carbs and fats and calories because, right. you know, there's good carbs, there's bad carbs, there's intermediate yep. carbs, and the same is true for fats. So, mm. um people say I don't like, you know, using lots of uh, cooking oils or whatever. But, you know, if like me, I use extra virgin olive oil, mm-hmm. um, which um, has been shown every, every study so far to be healthy and uh, reduce your risk of diseases because it's part of the Mediterranean diet. And yeah. yet got 12% of it is saturated fat. Yeah. And so, Every day, I'm having a lot of saturated fat, which you know some people would say is bad. Yeah. Um, 
so it's you know you've got to be very precise about which one you're knocking but it's perhaps you're talking more about these palm oils and um coconut oils and these other things that are being blended together in often into processed foods yeah Um, we tend not to have them on their own because you know unless coconut unless you love you know having all your food smelling like a bounty bar, you know, you're not really going to want uh, yeah. coconut oil all the time. Um, and, but they're, they're often hidden in, in all, you know, in, in junk foods. Yeah. And I think that, that's where we get the problem. But let's not uh, be rude about fats because some of them are actually really good for us yeah. and, um, and healthy. So we, we've done a reasonable job in getting rid of trans fats. Right, okay. Uh, although... The U.S. particularly was incredibly slow. It was mm-hmm. about 15 years behind Scandinavia, right? Which someone estimated probably cost you know, uh, you know, at least half a million deaths. Okay, uh, just because of you know the pressure on the food lobby. Yeah, um, wanted to keep trans fats because they were you know, they made it tasty and cheap, and um, they didn't have to worry about it. But um, yeah, so. There are, I do worry about new fats coming along, which is perhaps what you're also talking about. And we've, yeah. we've replaced trans fats with something called interesterified fats. Okay. Which is another way of getting these uh, spreads and margarines to stick together. Okay. Uh, to, like, to be solid. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we're told they're safe. Um, you know, I still think it needs more proper research uh, before we should be doing that. So for the moment, you know, I've I've definitely gone back to uh, butter and uh, high quality olive oil. Yeah, I mean that's similar to me. I I I have a you know a fairly high saturated fat diet. But yeah, what I was meaning was you know around the seed oils and the vegetable oils that when they're heated at high temperatures, you know their molecular structure changes and they can you know when they're ingested by the body can cause inflammation in the body. Um, and I believe that that's, you know, not spoken about enough. You know, we speak a lot about sugar and the detrimental effects that that can have, but there's not enough spoken about these, these trans fats and other fats that you've just spoken about with margarine. So um, I think, again, the, the culture is that, you know, we shouldn't have fat, we should have low fat. And like, like I said earlier, with, with the study that was done in 1952, that's been shown that that's not necessarily case but that doesn't mean to say you should go out and consume a load of saturated fat i think it's everything's in moderation isn't it it is and uh you know we know some people tolerate saturated fat better than others and but in general if you can balance your diet with enough variety of plants to have a good microbiome we've shown that your microbes can help digest the fats much better and so it's like having a buffer, you know, um, but if you don't, if you have low fiber, you're not having, you know, uh, foods that are good for your gut health, you will struggle to really deal with fats and it will start to build up and cause inflammation. But, you know, I think everyone is slightly different in their response um, Mm. to fats and it also changes with with age as well. Yeah. So, you know, if, uh, you know, when you're 30, it, it, it's going to be different to when you're uh, 60 or more. And, we, you know, we change. And as our metabolism changes, we've, we did these studies also looking at time of day of eating, you know, and we've right. got all these, uh, these, these dogmas about what's the best time of day to eat. And that's why people always said, oh, you must have breakfast mm. because you metab- metabolize better at breakfast okay and that was the dogma even if you're not hungry stuff your face at breakfast because it's the best time to eat and it's just really stupid because you know i've now discovered that often i i don't i don't actually wake up starving no uh, and it's just habit that makes you you do it and our ancestors never had breakfast um you know i spent time in tanzania with a hunter-gatherer tribe and they didn't have a word for breakfast yeah never heard of it and uh They'd never eat before 10 or 11. Um, and so we probably never did before Mr. Kellogg's came around and uh, said to um, yeah. First thing in the morning, you know, you, you can't go off to work or school without uh, s- sticking lots of uh, sugar in your, in your mouth. 
Um, so where, where, where was I? Yeah, so, um, so we, we were told we metabolize better in the morning than the evening. So we, we gave a lot of our twins these muffins right. um, at identical meals at, at different times of the day. And yeah, most people actually do metabolize um, uh, better in the morning than the evening. They have less sugar peaks, less inflammation. Um, but one in four, it's the opposite. And right. it's about 50-50 when you get over uh, 60. And I'm one of the, I was one of those who actually metabolize um, the other way around. So I'm better in the evening. Okay. So it makes no sense for me to have all my calories in the morning. So again, this is just an example of how our new studies, our new technology are mm. completely destroying these old myths that, yeah. um, you know, someone started 30 years ago, you know, and food manufacturers or whatever just get, you know, increasing it. And the actual study was rubbish, you know. Yeah. No, no one's gone back and really checked it. And yeah. if you only study 20-year-olds, that that's what you will find. But if you actually study the whole population, you get a different in, in large scale. But that's typical of the nutrition studies. They were tiny, yeah. underfunded, yeah. underfunded, you know, um, we're making huge recommendations for you know, millions of people based on some study of, you know, seven people. And you, you wouldn't, if food was a drug, you just wouldn't do that. No, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I completely agree. And there's a whole, well, there's a lot of conspiracy behind, you know, how certain studies are twisted based on who's funding it and things like that. We won't go down that path. But, um, you know, I think just to come back to basics, really, before we, we, we wrap it up, you know, in summary, you know, we, we've kind of discussed that taking it or, or, or questioning the, the, our approach to food and trying different things and seeing how we're feeling, uh, and, and the other big key factor, I think, the big takeaway is that we need to essentially re-educate ourselves. And so, you know, what would you say, taking it back to basics, thinking about the microbiome and how people can adapt, what were the five key things that you would say to, to people listening to this that they could actually start taking away and just trying for themselves? Okay, well, I think the first thing is to realise you're unique. Okay, mm. that's the sort of... Um, uh, and so what your partner or your neighbor or, you know, the guy at the gym <laughs> said, ain't necessarily going to work for you. No. Um, then I, I try and get the 30 types of plant a week. Right. Uh, and remember that, uh, nuts and seeds are also plants. So it's, uh, it's actually easier when you just start thinking that way, right. and lots right. of things to sprinkle on your food have some fermented foods uh, every single day and remember that you know, if you haven't tried things like kefir uh, and kombucha there's many more microbes in them that, than in yogurt and when you do don't have any additives in your stuff have it full fat yeah, exactly. um, you know no sugar just the pure stuff um, then uh, also look for your foods that are um, high in polyphenols right haven't we really discussed this but no. uh, polyphenols are the chemicals natural defense chemicals in in all plants uh, that are like rocket fuel for your gut microbes um, and they um, and so they're in the brightly colored berries and nuts and uh, fruits uh, the colors will generally tell you uh, what's good um, but there's no polyphenols in, in a uh, Iceberg lettuce, for example. Um, and, and finally, I think it's, uh, it's self-experiment. Play with your meal times. Try, right. skipping, try skipping breakfast. Try changing your exercise routine you know, around different meal settings. Try intermittent fasting, which is good yep. for your microbes. Um, try this new idea of uh, restricted time feeding, where you try and allow yourself minimum 12 or better 14 hours overnight where you're not eating and even if that's once or twice a week you know you, you'll notice the difference to your energy levels and your health. and that's that's really what i would do um and if i was in the us and i had uh, the spare cash i'd also do you know the zoe predict study uh test 
Um, but um, with those things, you'll, you'll get you know, a good part of the way yeah. Um, yeah. towards getting it right. But you've got to listen to your body. That's the yeah. key. Definitely. I, I think we, we haven't spoken too much about intermittent fasting, but that's something that I adopted a couple of years ago. Um, and it has made a dramatic impact to my morning in, in, you know, in the morning. I don't eat until midday. That's the first meal I have. I even train in the morning as well. Um, and I'm just my cognitive awareness, you know, my mental capacity to deal with stuff if I'm doing detailed work and things like that is way more than it ever used to be after you've consumed, like you say, whatever breakfast it is you consume in the morning. So, yeah, I'd highly recommend people just try that out. And it's not as difficult as you might think because, you know, if you're having seven to nine hours sleep a night, you know, that's a large chunk of it. And so you only have to stop eating earlier in the day and eat a few hours later in the day. It's no great kind of difficulty, is it, really? So, uh, but no, it especially have... if you're busy. Yeah. yeah. If you're bored and you're, and you're hanging around the fridge, it's really tough. But if you've got yeah. a busy day or you're doing sports and things like that, you're out, you really don't. It's just habit. And so, yeah, I absolutely agree. Everyone should try it. And I think psychologically it's great for you as well. Also, you know, it's like the 5-2 stuff that, you know, if you – you know, it's good to be hungry occasionally, you know? Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And then you, you really enjoy that next meal, uh, you know, it's something to look forward to, and you don't tend to go wild as much yeah. as you would thought. So, yeah, I think we've just forgotten what it's like to, to feel hungry and then get distracted and then not feel hungry, you know, um, yeah. realize that you can get through it. Yeah, exactly. So, Professor Tim, before I let you go, how can people connect with you? Obviously, you've got all your books and stuff. You've got a website. Yes. Um, well, everything should be on uh, my website, which is uh, tim dot uh, tim dot was it tim dot spectra at uh, uh, dot uh, co dot uk. I've looked at it for a while. Um, and the um, uh, follow me on Twitter on Tim Spectra and, and Instagram. And um, if you're interested to take part in the uh, your own personalised nutrition study in the US. Uh, go to jo joinzoe.com and uh, if you're in the UK and you want to go on the wait list it's the same um, thing to look at and if you're interested in any of our COVID studies and we're also doing some nutritional stuff looking at the importance of nutrition on COVID uh, check out the website there which is uh, covid.joinzoe.com so okay. there's plenty of ways to do it uh, and, uh, but the website joinzoe.com uh, links most of those things up. Yeah, lovely. I wasn't. Yeah, yeah I wasn't aware of the the one in the UK for Zoe, so I'll I'll definitely be signing up to that. I think. And uh, yeah, and the latest book is called Spoon Fed, and uh, it should be available everywhere. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate your time during this busy great. time. It's been great to chat. Thanks very and, much. Um, yeah, I look forward to speaking to you again in the future. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Fitter Healthier Dad podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please hit subscribe. And I would really appreciate if you could leave a review on iTunes. All the links mentioned in the episode will be in the show notes. And a full transcription is over at fitterhealthierdad.com.